Welcome to the Well Season Librarian Podcast. I'm your host, Dean Jones, and this is Season 8, Episode 25. I'm so very happy to be talking with you um, today and on the podcast. And just this, this year has passed by so quickly. I can't believe we're getting towards the end of the year and uh, going into the holiday season. It's just been just a blast to talk to as many people as I've talked to over the course of the last year. And saying things like it's season eight, episode 25 is just thrilling, feeling like I just started this yesterday. Today's guest is Priyamani, and you may know her from um, her very famous blog, uh, Cookalore. It's on um, Instagram, and it's a pretty big deal. It's a visual encyclopedia of Indian food. Now, Priya is a Copenhagen-based designer and food writer, and those two things kind of go together for her. Uh, they're very influent One influences the other. She grew up in India and studied at the National Institute of Design. Her bylines have appeared in The Art of Eating, Whetstone Journal, and Gastro Obscura, among others. Her work was found mentioned in Ellie Decor, Wired, UK, and Mold Magazine. She won an award, an honorable mention at the Sophie Coe Prize for Food Writing in 2021. She is working on a, as I've said, visual encyclopedia of Indian foods called Cookalore on Instagram that won the British Guild of Food Writers Award in 2022, as it should, and the International Association of Culinary Professionals Award, IACP Award in 2022, as well as it should. She regularly presents at the Oxford Symposium of food and cooking. She was such a just a, a great guest and so willing to talk about the topics we covered. And I just felt really blessed to ha have her. Um, you know, I always say, <clears throat> as I said before, um, so many guests are worried about being too verbose, but you know, when they want to talk and they're willing to talk lovingly on subjects that they're good at, it's just a real treat and it makes the interview process so much easier for me. I feel kind of lazy almost. Um, and it's just really great. So I love talking to Priya. I hope we get to have her on again because she was such a thrilling uh, guest and had so much to say. So it was a great conversation. So I'm not going to take up any more of your time. I'm going to go ahead and go right to it so you can hear it. So this is my interview with um, designer, food writer Priya Mani. Welcome to the Well Seasoned Librarian podcast. Today I'm speaking with food writer Priya Mani. Priya, welcome to the program. Thanks, Dean. Thanks for inviting me here. Now, Priya, talk to us about how you begin writing. And when did you feel that you had that moment, that kind of wow moment when you realized, I'm going to be a writer? <laughs> well, I'm not a full-time writer, but uh, yes, I do write for a big part of my work. I'm trained as a designer, and I worked with textiles in the past. Oh. And in, the, in 2000, I, I started working with a UNESCO-supported initiative to study and document Parsi, Zoroastrian textiles in India. And it was a, you know, it was a classic uh, ethnographic work with uh, the analytical eye of a designer. And I had to write a report at the end of six weeks for the client. It went on to become a monograph studying textiles and private collections of over 200 odd Parsi families across India, spanning four more years than it was intended to be. So and I really enjoyed the process of writing and photographing. It was, it was immensely fruitful. And it allows for sort of, I think, communicating my observation and learnings in great depth. And, um, and I, as a person, uh, revel in craftsmanship and detail. Um, and, you know, food to me is just another aspect of material culture. And the craftsmanship and details it entails are no different. Uh, so I think writing just seems to be a natural extension 
of this need to communicate and share. Your work in food writing often speaks to the narrative of Indian food in our culture. Can you speak about that and how the world's perception of Indian food is beginning to change for us? Sure. Um, I think second generation Indian diaspora are taking matters into their own hands. They're writing very different kind of food narratives than we've seen in the past. Uh, like for example, with Mother Jaffre. Uh, while I really see the importance of uh, Mother Jaffre's work in making this topic approachable, I know that this conversation has also evolved so much to putting hyper-regional food, uh, the role of class, uh, privilege, um, and that very Indian thing that we call caste, putting all of this on the table. I think people like uh, writers like uh, Tejal Rao and Priya Krishna and uh, Krishna Ray in the US are really raising the bar on this perception. Uh, but I also think that uh, this conversation must in the future reflect a lot um, that we're talking about globally. That is India's role as a food provider to the world. And then with its billion people as one of the world's largest consumers of food too, I think. How are we as a country and as a population and as diaspora representing the country, how are we responding to climate change? And how is our national and regional framework building resilience in the face of all this? And how is our traditional diets changing as a response to all of this? I think that is something that I would, uh, I would like to put on the table uh, as conversation on Indian food uh, going further, uh, which I think is uh, the need of the hour as well. I was reading an um, article by um, a writer I admire, uh, Lily Ramirez Foran, and she was talking about um, how uh, in Mexican food is represented normally in uh, pop culture or in writing even, you'll just see some gener generic photo of a taco and it drives her crazy. Right. Do you have a similar situation when you, when you see Indian food represented? It's like it's always ubiquitously curry and it just, does it drive you crazy? Are, are you trying to say like, hey, there's more to it than just this aspect of it? I think Indians are also victims of that bias. I mean, to some degree, uh, we have the same level of homogenization within India as well. Uh, so if you uh, if you traveled in the north uh, until about two decades ago, idlis and dosas were largely categorized as being just madrasi food. I come from the south of India and anything south of the Vindhya mountains was just madrasi. So I think it's a question of perception. And as, um, as a highly connected audience uh, these days, I think we are far more equipped with the nuanced uh, terminologies that we need to discuss where people come from, what do they eat, and why do they eat that? And I think that sort of vocabulary was missing in the past. People just didn't care. It was just boxed. So I wouldn't blame the international audience because that is also existent and, and still dominant in India. So, uh, for example, another dish that uh, that is becoming a... I think, it, you know, uh, Dean, it, it, it's also probably a need for us to... While we appreciate the, um, the the mosaic of diversity, I think it's also this need to have something that is that is um, that's common that we all have a shared vocabulary of. So now another dish that is taking its wave in India is biryani. Everyone seems to you know talk about biryani, and biryani is becoming the new curry. Um, so I think there is a need for both. Uh, maybe it's just this innate human. Un, um, unexplainable need to have a common thread to say that we are connected in a way. Um, either it's imposed on us like it was in the case of curry or it's self, um, 
adopted, like in the case of biryani. Yeah, I, I see restaurants now popping up in the area where I live now that are just mm. selling biryani only, nothing yeah. else. Yeah, you can see that. So this, we are living through a new wave, a new wave of homogenization. Uh, and that was not the case uh, before. Uh, biryani was limited to certain communities and uh, certain uh, occasions. It was, uh, you know, it was also deeply related to the um, to the Muslim communities. To, uh, so it was part of uh, you know breaking the fast during months of fasting and um, and uh, you know classic biryani recipes. Uh, but you could you could also connect them to areas where there were a lot of um, you know, slaughtering going on, and that was largely related to the hide industry. So I think it was it was also a larger network. So, for example, if you take Ambur biryani, Ambur is a is a part in Tamil Nadu, and uh, the biryani there is very different from the biryani in in generally made in the north of India. It's not made with long grain rice uh, or basmati. It's made with a short grain rice, and um, the, the 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 whole region of Ambur actually has a huge uh, um, leather industry. And that's why there was, you know, there's a, there is animals landed up there. There is a uh, use for the skin and there is also a use for the meat. Um, and I think this interdependency is what eventually what brought up these, um, these regional specific foods, um, especially in the case of biryani. But uh, yeah, like today we see biryani has become something else. Biryani was also sort of the election food, right? It was also the currency of uh, what politicians used. So biryani and beer was what they sold, uh, what they gave away as um, uh, as incentives to come and watch election rallies, but also vote. So biryani becomes currency. And so biryani can be many things, I think. Um, in this conversation around biryani, there are many layers. There is caste who is allowed to put water into their biryani. Um, and not to mention, the whole uh, area of adulterated biryani and adulterated meats that find their wheat, uh, way into, um, into biryani. That's a whole other conversation. So yeah, going back to homogenization, I think, yes, we, we see it happen over and over again. It's very cyclical, I think, in that sense. I feel like it's very personal to families too. I, I was talking mm. about food with a coworker and um, I, I mentioned biryani and, they, and they're like, they said with mock the theatrical, uh, a declaration you, you know nothing of birani never speak of it and i'm like <laughs> I, I, we laughed but you know i was like i guess it you know it could be kind of a personal thing right right exactly yes and it's also family so families have biryani recipes that are uh traditional to to their um you know it's it's handed down from generation to generation uh cooked in their family kitchens um which probably served large meals and it was an occasion food it was not an everyday food like it's become i think you have you have a project that I'm very uh, eager to talk to you, as you can imagine. Um, it's your Instagram account, Cookalore, where you have a visual encyclopedia of Indian food from A to Z. I'm really captivated by it, by the colors, by the uh, photography that you do, um, and just the way you um, organize the items that you're highlighting. Um, do you want to talk to our audience about Cookalore and how you came to create it? Yeah. Thank you so much. I, I really enjoy writing it and I'm glad you enjoyed reading it. So uh, the early idea, um, the early writing and the idea for the encyclopedia was I think somewhere around 15, 16 years ago. I had picked up a copy of Katie Achea's, uh, Katie Achea is an Indian food writer. Um, 
and I had picked up a copy of his Illustrated Foods of India at the airport on my maiden flight to Copenhagen. Um, I moved here about 17 years ago, yes, 2007. So, um, And I read it cover to cover during the flight. Um, the book became a kitchen side read. It became a bedside read. And over the years, I scribbled lots and lots of notes and comments into it. Um, I didn't always agree with Achaya, but I was also in awe of him. So, um, but then I also realized that Achaya's writing was often conditioned by his own geography and cultural bias. And I, I know now that it's hard to escape that, right? He was a Kodava from Coorg, and but he was also a food technologist, which gave him the authority and the vocabulary and the reading expertise that is needed, you know, broad reading across decades to write something like that. Uh, but then there are instances when it becomes very apparent uh, that Achia writes by way of learning from writers before him and, and not from his own culinary knowledge which is you know, implicit cooking. And so I started writing Google Docs for each topic, writing down notes, jotting down recipes. And you, know, you can imagine those are sort of the proto entries for what has become uh, Kukalora today. Um, and I hoped to collaborate it one day when I had time. And uh, so I have, I have a Google Drive where I have entries going from A to Z, about 700 odd uh, entries. And this is only the plant kingdom. The animal kingdom is a separate, uh, I deal with fish and meat separately. So um, yeah, I think um, that somewhere in reading that book and reflecting on it also from, from the experiences of my work as a designer, I think it became truly, um, apparent that one needed to strive writing a broader overview of, of Indian food, uh, because there is really no such thing as Indian food. And, and still, the only way you can actually describe it uh, in, uh, to make it simple is to call it Indian food. It's yeah. 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 I mean, I've seen that with Mexican food. I've talked to so many people who don't really know what people in other parts of Mexico are cooking. So there's no right. homogeneousness like we imagine they're not eating the same food from region to region and we just have this conception and i've talked to people from india as well that like you know they're going it's a big continent it's it's a lot of it's a lot of space why exactly. would we be necessarily cooking what people are cooking you know thousands of miles away it makes sense but i think we've kind of missed that sometimes in our culture right because i think a lot of the practices that you know uh I think cooking is a means to the end, to arrive at the end dish. And uh, even though you may have a similar end dish in different parts of the country, the means to achieving that is so different because it is informed by what you have locally. Um, your, um, the culture of preparing ingredients, making them ready for preparation in the era before supermarkets made ingredients easily available. So if it was rice, how did you prepare rice in order to make a particular dish? It was not always steaming it or cooking it. So um, I think uh, preparations are informed by uh, local traditions, the climate, uh, what is the geography of the place like? What is the rice? When you say rice, there are hundreds of varieties of rice. So what kind of rice did they use? Was it a rice that grew in 60 days? Was it a rice that grew in 90 days? Both are very, very different. Uh, they behave differently when you wet it. So I think there is the, the, the act of cooking is so informed by uh, the geography, the climate, uh, the caste, the class, uh, you know, the privilege. What do people have access to? Uh, what is available? Yeah. I think so many of these factors. 
Your your uh, Instagram account reminds me very much of a conversation I had once. Um, one of my coworkers and I were talking about um, Indian cooking, and we we just we went on a digression for a half hour on aso fetida alone. Yeah. And so I think like when you see the, like the broken down components, it's not mm. just like you know, in in the West we'll just like say cinnamon, a couple of dashes, blah blah blah. We yeah. use things ubiquitously, but this is very different. You talk about things specifically, and you and you highlight the importance and how it's used. Do you want to expand on that a little bit for the people who haven't seen it yet? Sure, I can. I can take a, 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 the same thing as asafoetida. We can do it with that. Um, so, if you take asafoetida, it's uh, it's a very fascinating ingredient. There are uh, references to it in Sanskrit texts, so we know the use is archaic. It's it's from a long time ago, um, and. Uh, but you know, the irony is that India does not really grow as a potato. So it's not a local ingredient. It's always been imported from Afghanistan. And now in the in the last few decades, the, the use of um, as a potato is so nationwide that um, we have had to import as a potato from the Middle East and often from war-torn regions, which means that the supply of um, uh, Asapotida is not always uh, straight, it's not always easy or cheap. Uh, so the, the price fluctuates heavily. What is also interesting is that how asapotida is, um, is processed differently for different markets, even within India. So the most common variety you'll find is a powder form, which is very little in percentage. So there's, it has less than 20% asapotida and the rest of the powder is actually beet or another kind of uh, you know, flour, which basically prevents the asapotida from clumping again. Asapotida is essentially um, a gum and that comes when you when you scar the tuber of a plant as a fetida ferula fetida and um, uh, you know you would dry the gum and then the gum is used its process so uh, there are there is uh, white as a fetida and there's red as a fetida uh, one is more flavorful than the other more pungent um, but in in if you look at regional kitchens not all regional kitchens use as a fetida. So, um, and they don't use it the same way either. One would imagine, oh, all Indian food use asafoetida, but that's not true either. I think a lot of this learning of using asafoetida has also come uh, by, uh, by people being more cosmopolitan in urban areas. You know, in the last 30 years, India itself has become super cosmopolitan, especially in the urban areas. Uh, we travel from different parts of India, living in different parts of India, working so uh, women learned it from each other, from neighbors, and it was a delicious ingredient. It brought magic to your food. So it's so you know it was slowly you know and um, you know brought into your own food. Um, if you look at, uh, I can give you an example of how it's used differently. In in Tamil Nadu, uh, you would get something called as katti perangai, which literally is a hard rock of the uh, the gum itself. It has no wheat in it. It is just a hard rock. It's crystalline. It's, really beautiful brown shiny rock and you would you would uh, you would um, scrape away little chunks of it to add to food but now you cannot add a, a, a crystal to food right because it wouldn't dissolve evenly so you would dissolve it in a little bit of water and that was one of the first things my grandmother said she would do when she went to the kitchen was to was to dissolve a little bit in a in a small vessel in a small uh, you know dish and then you would use that milk because it turns, you know, when it dissolves, it turns the water milky. And you would mm -hmm. use drops of that milk to season your food. 
So uh, when you add asafoetida to a steaming, uh, you know, to a broth, it has a very different flavor. And then another way of using the same rock would be to fry it in oil. And then it would swell up like as if it was a papadam or a fryam. And then oh, you wow. would pound that into, into a powder. So you can try that too. You can order this rock asafoetida and then you can try frying it in oils. And then it makes, a, it, it enlarges, it swells like four times its size. And it becomes this lightweight, crunchy thing that you can powder. And therefore you make this powder and then you can sprinkle that powder into, uh, for example, the classic gunpowder, milikapuri that's made and eaten with dosas. That's the way to include it. Uh, traditionally, it would be fried in oil and then you know ground with the other spices and, and uh, lentils and stuff. A third way of using it is to, um, is to soften the crystal uh, by keeping a piece. So uh, my maternal grandmom had this tradition. So she lived most of her adult life in Bombay. Um, and, and her way of dealing with asafoetida, crystal asafoetida, was to leave a small piece of chili inside, uh, uh, a small bottle. So she would keep the crystal in a piece of chili and the crystal and the chili would actually soften the crystal. So you could pinch off a small piece and add it to your food. Right. So, right. And this is just if you look at the variety of uh, asafoetida you get in the market, if you actually go down to it, you see you, you get a whole range, you get softened as a photo, you get it like a crystal, you get it like a powder because there are so many ways to cook with it. I love this conversation. I'm loving all this. I want to ask you Probably about too the... much of a detail. <laughs> no, no, no. This is the kind of, this is our, this is the uh, meat and, meat and uh, drink of our, our podcast. So <laughs> you're doing great. This is wonderful. Um, you know, I was going to say, um, as a librarian, I'm very curious about what the research process has been like for your work on this, uh, on this account, what, what are you, um, what are you encountering? Do you ever have any difficulties or are you finding a lot of this in your own library? Wow, this is a great question from a great, from a person with the right background, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so I think, yeah, let, let me go through a lot of the different challenges. So yeah, you know, the first thing is, is to categorize, right? is, to, is to find out what it is and just to classify. So Google is not often your best friend here. Um, <laughs> Because, uh, so for example, let me say, uh, sometimes it's as simple as identifying the right, correct botanical name, as there are many cases of wrong identification, um, also in scientific articles. Um, a case in point could be black human, which can be the colloquial name for nigella seeds in many publications. So if you look at the vernacular names for black human, it could be Kalazira, it could be Shahizira, and then, you know, the classic human is called Zira. And if you, most online text is a cut paste version of another piece of text from somewhere. I mean, just to find the provenance yeah. of text and online sources is such a challenge. And if you see, most of it would actually say Kalazira and Shahijira is the same, but they're not. What you are looking for is a Bunium persicum, which is a true black human. It's tiny, cumin-like seeds, intensely earthy, aromatic, grows wild in northwestern regions in the subcontinent in Kashmir, at least as far as India goes. And um, I think another challenge is the time it takes to connect all these dots. So, uh, you know, nailing down on the right ingredient and then finding it. So even in shops, you would find uh, the ingredient is wrongly labeled and the wrong botanical names are written. So often, uh, like in the case of uh, Kalazira and Shahizira, I ended up finding the ingredient in a Ayurvedic shop because uh, that's where, a, 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 you know, there's a wide variety of ingredients kept there. 
another challenge is the time it takes to uh, to understand regional cuisines following a culinary thread of a particular preparation style. Um, like, you know, I said with biryani, for example, there are just so many different regional variations and how do you map that? So just writing one entry, I think if you were to write it in words, it's far more easy. Uh, but if you were to do what I was doing, which is basically empirically cook everything, because if it needs to be photographed, it needs to be cooked. And I think I have also learned that the cooking process is integral to my approach because it allows me to see connections that are not apparent. Because otherwise I would just be paraphrasing what has already been written about the food. And I don't see a need to do that. I, I really enjoy the process of cooking and the learning that comes from it. Um, you know, um, so I think uh, there are, that's the, uh, that's a challenge of the, the research side. Uh, there are creative challenges, uh, like for example, in representation uh, of, the, of the research itself. So like I said, I cook all the foods that you see in the encyclopedia. Um, so an example uh, where photography was a challenge was an entry called Bhog. So Bhog is a ceremonial meal offered to deities in Hindu worship. And one of the images, uh, so as you see, as you know, I'm, I make three images. So the Instagram feed has been visualized as a triptych but sometimes I have more images that I take and I don't put them online. Um, so one of the main images for Bhog um, is, uh, is, is one representing Chappan Bhog or 56 foods, literally meaning, which is um, a Bhog or a ceremonial meal prepared at the Jagannath temple in Orissa. It's very famous because you know the, just the sheer scale of uh, food that's prepared makes it a stunning uh, thing to behold and eat and taste. And yeah, of course, it was mind boggling to plan the preparations for that because um, in a home kitchen, making 56 ingredients and having four people in a family to eat all that you cook um, can be quite a challenge. So I, I cook dolls house, you know, I, I, I make little doll meals, I make tiny meals of, of things. So to so to find the uh, the connection between ingredients and between these preparations, and you realize there are not 56 actually. There are, some of them are minor variations on each. So probably th these have been appended over time to eventually become this mammoth meal of 56 preparations. Um, but in reality, one of them is, for example, there's rice with ghee, and then there is rice with ghee and sugar, and then there is rice with ghee, sugar, and yogurt. So there are variations that you see. So trying to sit down and demystify it, kind of deconstruct the whole thing, classifying it, and sort of abstracting the essence of the idea eventually helps. This episode is sponsored by Culinary Historians of Northern California, a Bay Area educational group dedicated to the study of food, drink, and culture in human history. To learn more about this organization and their work, please visit their website at www.chnorcal.org. I really love the way that uh, Kukalor looks. It's mm. very beautiful. And what I like about it and what is different, I think, from many other Instagram accounts is that it looks very conceptualized. You really tell right. that there's a lot of there's a lot of thought and a lot of love put into it. Sometimes I'm stunned um, by how 
good the photography is and how there's there's times when it'll look like maybe an old an old-fashioned um, botanical print and sometimes right. it, it, it just looks like a museum display what are the challenges for you and, and what is your thought process when you go and you start conceptualizing some of the visual aspects of this yeah, I'm so glad you said it looks like a museum display because, yeah, sometimes I do try to achieve that diorama style feel to it. I I think it's also about just sort of the attitude of putting something in focus and studying it. So um, I try to, while I do make a reference to the cultures that cook it, you know, different communities that cook it, I, do, I, I, I refrain from ordering them by sort of, you know, uh, creating a sort of hierarchy on, on, and I don't really, if you notice, I don't put any um, opinions on taste uh, on, um, on, yeah, it, I, it's not an opinionated piece in that sense, because I think the idea is to represent, the idea is to show the, the plethora, to show the, the possibilities, and I stick to that quite, um, quite consciously. And uh, so, yeah, as I said, the Instagram feed has been visualized as a triptych, and that's been very, you know, really for practical reasons, because I felt that the entries read easier when you see them in a line of three, because um, mm -hmm. when you write the word into it, it's more distracts from the visual aspect of it. Um, you can write A for agave or A for whatever, or B for something. But I think it's also that I would like, if you haven't followed the, the feed so far and you, arri you, you arrive at the feed, I think it's nice to, the, the, the serendipity of finding an entry is also good because if you, if you just pass through the, en the encyclopedia, it, you are not guided into saying, oh, it's about um, agar agar, or it is about um, you know uh, bamboo, and I don't want to know about that. But I rather want to read about something else. But you know, having this um, this plain picture uh, without any text lead allows for a, a truly explorative experience um, and the joy of uh, serendipity. I think, um, and the photography is. Um, you know, it, it's, I think, creatively very challenging and I kind of enjoyed maybe my own background as a designer uh, feels very satisfied doing that. Um, it's, it's also a case of very deliberate framing using precise, just enough props. If you notice, I don't overly style the images with the backgrounds that, um, that speak of provenance. Um, and that's, that's also a very conscious take on it. Um, I take time to photograph the entries. They're not always done alphabetically as you see them. Um, I take the advantage of seasons, um, availability of ingredients, um, access to a particular cooking skill sometimes, you know, maybe mom's visiting or maybe I have a friend here whose who's mom's visiting. There was a lady who worked in the, um, in the um, uh, Indian embassy who had a domestic help who couldn't speak a word beyond Bhojpuri, which is a dialect spoken in Bihar. And she came from a village. So she had knowledge of really village style cooking in um, in, in, a, in a village in Bihar. And I think I, I really enjoyed cooking with her. So I, I, I'm very open to finding people and I'm, I'm very chatty when I go to the local markets. I, so I, I, I make friends very easily in that way, you know, but then I try to use food as a conversation. I try to find my way into their kitchen and ask myself to be invited. And I see how I can use other people's knowledge and skills. So um, most recently I met someone who's from Burma, who's from Myanmar. And um, she, uh, so her mom looked so uh, Burmese, but uh, she looked very Indian. And then it turns out that 
and uh, her great grandfather was actually a chettiar from tamil nadu and then the family has completely lost touch with india but they do follow some indian traditions and they cook some indian food so it's just really fascinating so yeah i you i try and find all kinds of people that i could you know rope into this 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 activity of mine um and um and as far as the photography goes if i'm not happy with the result i don't hesitate to go back and reshoot it um at another point in time and i and it, it happens very often that sometimes i'm not very uh, convinced about the message that the the photograph gives um then i go back um abstract entries are tough i think um you know because uh, when they when they work they're immensely satisfying but you know for example take the entry on ash or um this whole concept of blooming of spices or tadka as we call it it's it's a process and to explain that process it was really hard and i finally had to um to uh, you know find an abstract way to represent it that eventually worked that that could uh, communicate the 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 variety of ways it's done the choice of oils the combination of spices the need for heat uh, the implements i think if you yeah if you take a look at that picture it brings all of those words into one image and uh, and it's sometimes things work in the first attempt and sometimes they don't and i think that's part of um this creative tussle and it's 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 exciting and it's also tremendously annoying sometimes and it doesn't work it's part of the process i think yeah i love the use of color that you have in cookalore mm. you really take great pains to highlight the items with gorgeous color as somebody who works in design what was your conscious process with this cuz it's really very distinct and and very singular on instagram thank you um once again um yeah i use a lot of color and many times i also make the props so if you took the same example of blooming of spices i actually uh, created the background for it so i wanted to create this feeling of diffusion in oil because that is the essence of tadka right you you diffuse but you infuse spices in hot oil and i wanted to create this 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 infusion this feeling of infusion so i'm kind of marble papers to create the background and um another example is this entry on amphora which if you scroll right down is one of the early entries and um um i wanted to talk about um the roman influence on indian food we've had a very strong trade link with rome uh, black pepper has you know sort of you know there are there are records that talk of black pepper being used there and also long pepper likewise um all along the indian coastline we have found amphorae also in um, you know inside the peninsula so how did these amphorae come and there's a lot of research around findings of roman amphora along india um and my my inquiry there was if if so many thousands of amphorae have been found why is it that we don't find um garum or uh, olive oil or um um yeah why don't we find these ingredients a wine um as a as a culture why haven't these taken root in india and um and that that research of course took me weeks actually before i could finally arrive on the photograph and i for that particular picture i um i uh, i modeled the amphorae the specific types of uh, amphorae that were found in india to to depict it so it's not it's not just a piece of historical text there is more a uh, context to it and you get a feeling of what it might have been when those amphorae actually arrived in arikamedu or along other uh, ports 
in, in India. I've worked with many scholars who have done work and as they do the research, it changes their perception of what they're yeah. doing. Yeah. So for you, as you created Cookalore, how has this changed? How has this topic changed for you? What has what, what kind of become different for you? I think the first uh, the first phase of this process was was just writing, as I told you, sort of annotating into Achia's book and, and writing my own little bits. Um, but then as I I think my my relocation to Denmark um, played a very important role in in how I approach the subject, I think. So I moved in 2007. And uh, when I moved here, uh, there wasn't such a big Indian diaspora here, which also meant that uh, there weren't many Indian stores. There weren't stores that sold Indian food so if uh, or ingredients and, and partially prepared ingredients. And if you, um, and my, my, my husband loves food. So um, it was a question of, you know, if you wanted to eat what you really enjoyed eating and if you wanted to, recreate things you have to make them from scratch you couldn't just buy dosa batter you just had to make it from scratch you couldn't buy uh, spice powders otherwise your mom would have to send it to you um, but the, a faster way and probably a more sustainable way was to learn it and make it yourself so it also meant that it took me on this hunt for ingredients uh, around town so I did I moved beyond the Indian stores I went into all the other local uh, you know, the, the regional, the ethnic stores. So there were Thai stores, there were Vietnamese shops, there were Middle Eastern stores, there were Afghani, Persian, Iranian, Iraqi food, there were Japanese food. So you would find your way into anything that's in any shop that sold ingredients. And second thing, you would learn to make things from scratch. So um, I think it was the simultaneous rise of Skype, the possibilities of staying in touch with family, uh, reaching out to them and, you know, talking to them live as you were cooking. And, um, and it sort of became this way of staying in touch. Cooking became a way to talk to your grandma, talk to your aunts. And it became this common activity that you did together over the phone. And I think that process of cooking and a parallel process of writing made you realize that the writing did not, at least for me personally, did not make sense without the cooking. And the cooking informed the writing. And the writing led me to reading more and more. So it was, it was this, it's not a, it's, it's, it's neither linear nor cyclical. I think it was this, um, this network of going back and forth, uh, this creative chaos that, is, that was happening for a long time. And then there came a point when I said, all that cooking doesn't make sense in words because there are some things that just make sense when you look at it. I mean, how many words can you use to describe food? I mean, how often can I just say it just looks delicious, it looks brown, it looks great, it smells aromatic. You just need words and, and, and an image can speak for a thousand words. So uh, finding a visual representation simply seemed like the most logical um, next step for me. Um, illustrating was not an option because I felt that I might bring in biases when I uh, illustrate. Um, and I might also skip details. So um, to create a visual simplicity that is easy to perceive and easy to understand and still have the granular details that one can go into at their own leisure, I felt photography would be a useful tool. I wanted to ask you, because we touched upon this earlier in the podcast, who are some of the food writers that are important to you and that you admire? 
I think there's a lot of interesting food writing coming out of uh, South Asia at the moment. Um, I actually, I would like to say that this morning that the Oxford Food Symposium's uh, um, proceedings from the last 40 years have been a wonderful resource. And I think it's, it's a living resource of food traditions uh, from all over the world. So, um, and I, I really like that global, global approach to food writing because I think one, one, at least for me, I think it was very important to see what was happening elsewhere before I zoomed in and looked at my own courtyard. Um, because I feel that uh, history repeats itself, patterns can be found, similar patterns are found in all societies. So the, the broader your, your learning scope is, the, the better you can focus on your own, um, um, you know, cultural, uh, your, your own food culture. And I think food writing in general from South Asia is having its moment. Um, I generally enjoy most of what I come across. Most of it, I think I see them as viewpoints, as, uh, as perceptions that belong to people from their own viewpoint, from their own standpoint, from their own little world. Um, from the non-academic writers, there are many pieces that are, I think a lot of origin stories um, or many filled with nostalgia. Uh, food studies scholars tend to look at all of this from a critical point of view, um, often involving um, access and accessibility and availability. And, you know, they bring in other sociocultural aspects. But I think it's important to note here that writers tend to focus at a starting point that is their own, but often fail to see how that how their tradition has interacted with region, with other regions and other food ways. Um, I can give you an example, and, and maybe you don't have to quote me on this. Um, I think it was <laughs> a piece by, um, by a Bangladeshi food writer on, on bharta, which is a category of mashed vegetable preparations. Um, and the piece simply did not acknowledge the repertoire of bharatas that are made in Bengal on the Indian side of the border. Or the numerous of the variations one tastes across India and they go by sim very similar names, often corrupted forms of the word. And, you know, like Bharta and Bharit, they're all related to Bharta and Bharta. So you can see there, the, the word has traveled, the dish has also traveled. And um, I think the onus also lies on the editors to help writers question and seek answers that are not apparent, connections that are not obvious. And that might mean that the writer has to go back to his or her research base, take another short journey of discovery, and then return to the piece enlightened. I think that's really important. Uh, from my own experience as a writer, I find very few editors are capable of such visionary guidance. Um, they have to challenge you and, and, and editors may not be the experts on that particular topic, but I think uh, knowing the blueprint of how some of these conversations have to happen and should be exposed, I think is key. So in the UK, I, I think where you know our, um, uh, the Indian diaspora has roots our colonial past it goes deeper. I really enjoy writings by Satnam Sanghera. I enjoy William Dalrymple in India. Vittles is great. Uh, I think uh, Jonathan tries yeah. to put a lot of, you know, I think he really puts a little herd and the political up for reading. Um, I learn much from the non-South Asian centered pieces, as I told you, because I think they they show me what, what happens on another side of the world where similar um, struggles have been faced by women who cook or communities that eat certain foods. Or um, My understanding of a piece from South Asia is of course deeper because I come from South Asia. I was born and raised in India at, and um, I've traveled and lived in different parts of India as a child and as an adult. And so your understanding of 
these socio-cultural, economic, and political issues, and also having worked there at grassroots levels allows you a deeper understanding. And so sometimes I do find that a critical viewpoint has been imposed just to make that sound, that particular topic sound like it's not just a story on food origins or food history, but it has a lot of political uh, you know, interest or social interest to it. So I find that um, that sort of, I think is a bit divisive because you know, I think the more you you read and write about food, you realize that people cook so many similar things. We are similar. Food is similar in so many ways than it's different. It, it, you know, it connects us in more ways than it divides us. So sometimes I do find that the critical writing is is veering to a point of being very divisive. Or um, yeah. But uh, I also I still enjoy reading A. a. Gill um, with his piece on uh, on famine and in Africa being one of my all time favorites. Um, I read a lot of uh, vernacular Indian languages, so I can read lo local Indian magazines. They don't offer any critical food writing, but they are living they are very living uh, reflections of what India is today. And most importantly, they cater to a part of the society that still reads vernacular non-English media. And I think that is very, very interesting and very useful because then I can make my own in inferences. And I feel you... often that uh, the critical uh, writing that you see in English is, um, is by people who have little connect to this, to this uh, form of general reading that you know, the, the, the general people do. What we call in India as am janta, ordinary people do. Do you think that uh, I know you get asked this question a lot, so I'll just go ahead and ask it. Do you think that Kukla will be a physical book someday? I think so. Yes, uh, I'm reaching out to people to do that now. I actually made a small mock-up uh, of a book a couple of months ago, uh, just to start seeing how the information flows. If it was to be in a in a you know paginated instead of being on a uh, on a social media feed um, that also uh, gives you, uh, at least it gave me a feedback on, on how I need to photograph uh, and look at images, composition, uh, storytelling and within the image itself. I think uh, that Kukulore, um, even if it goes on to being a printed book, which I hope it does, because it's nice to have something physical. I, I don't think I had this vision when I started the Instagram feed. Um, I think it's become more clear now that yes, it needs to be a book with pages that one can go from A to Z. Um, and But I think it still must live a parallel life on a digital platform as a living encyclopedia. Um, I have lots of ideas for how this could be possible beyond being you know locked up in a, something like Instagram. I can't wait to discuss with someone who uh, would like to eventually support me on taking this forward as a book. Priya, I want to thank you for being on the podcast. I'm going to include a link uh, for Cookalore in the bio for anybody who hasn't seen it yet. You're going to love it. Priya, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you, Dean. That was my conversation with Priya Mani, whose Visual Encyclopedia of India Foods Cookalore is on Instagram. We have a link to that in the bio. Next week, we're going to have many authors on who are gonna talk about Hanukkah. On Monday, we're gonna have a special um, panel with two of our guests to come back and talk about Hanukkah, Faith Kramer and Beth Lee. We're also gonna run encore presentations of both of their interviews from the last year as well. Then we're gonna have Kim Kushner at the end of that week um, of Modern Table talking about um, 
foods for the Jewish holidays as well. Please tune into that episode. You're going to really like it. Hope you all have a great week. If you want to share this, um, our link on social media to kind of spread the word, we always appreciate new listeners. I hope you all have a really great week, and I hope you all are able to cook a lot of great things. Until next week. Thank you.